0: Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. This is Paul. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, will this mean fruitful label for me? Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to be departed and to be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for the progress and joy in the faith. So that... Through my being and with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, let me pray for us before we jump into that text. Uh, Father, thank you that you have spoken to us by, by your word. Thank you for the generosity of, of this community to send Your word to the border of uh, Venezuela and Colombia, Um, because, God, we need you to speak. We need to hear from you, for you to guide us um, through our lives. And so, Lord, as we open your word tonight, would you guide us, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The biggest threat to joy in your life is, is suffering, but not for the reason you think. I moved to Kansas City eight years ago uh, to be a part of our pastoral residency program. Um, the idea behind that is, much like doctors will serve underneath other doctors before they go and actually like, treat other people, we should think similarly with pastors. Pastors should go serve under other pastors, learn the, the trade with someone before they go and do that on their own. So that's the kind of the vision of the residency. That's why I came here. Joseph's our resident now. Andrew went through the residency, as did I. And that's why I moved here. And so when I, when I moved here, one of the first things that uh, Nathan Miller, the Olathe campus pastor, had me do was we went and we visited a woman who, who went to Olathe who was dying of cancer. Her name was Nancy McCollum. And I remember just being kind of terrified, going into that for the, the first time, and, and yet she was just this incredible presence. We had a good time. And, and as we left, just sort of decided I'm gonna, I was going to continue to grab time with Nancy and to walk with her through her life. And that was, that was an intimidating thing. What's it, what's it like to walk with someone towards their death? It turns out it can actually be a lot of fun. Uh, Nancy, Nancy had jokes, Uh, we laughed a lot together. We cried together, certainly, but we laughed a lot together because she was a woman who who suffered with joy. And my guess is that's something all of us want to be true of us when we suffer. We want to be people who suffer with joy. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Because we all, I think, have this sense that suffering is something that's likely to take joy from us. So how do we live a life where that doesn't happen to us? Where When we suffer, we still suffer with joy. And and so while I want to say, yes, suffering is a big threat to your joy, it's not for the reason you think. And so let's look at at Paul. I mentioned last week we are in a series for the next uh, nine or eight weeks after this Sunday in the book of Philippians, thinking about the theme of joy because that is a primary theological theme throughout the book of Philippians, which is interesting because the circumstances surrounding Philippians you would not expect Paul to be writing from a joyful spirit. So I named one circumstance last week. I'm going to name three circumstances this morning for why Paul really should not have had joy on his mind. The first one is what I mentioned last week, which is that Paul writes this letter from prison, from a Roman prison. And I showed a picture of a Roman prison cell last week, but they were dark, depressing, awful places To be and to live, and and this is Paul's setting. He's in this dark place, lonely, unsure if the next time he leaves, he's going to be executed. So he's in prison. Circumstance two is that people are are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. So Paul goes into this. So Paul is most likely in Rome, in prison. And what he says is, is there are people now preaching in Rome, and they're preaching out of selfish ambition. And so here's what Paul writes, verse 15. Um, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from good will. Then again, verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Which is, it, you know, you should, you should wonder what, what does he mean by that, or who are these, these folks? And throughout Philippians, there are a number of different uh, opponents Paul will speak. Too. And, and that's one of the debates in interpreting the book, is how many different groups is Paul speaking about? Is it one? Is it three? Is it what, Who is it? And I, I think this is, this is a unique group. When Paul will speak about his opponents later, he's, he's not going to speak about these people. Because it's clear these folks actually preached an orthodox gospel. They preach Christ. So they're faithful in what they're teaching. However, we're told they preach Christ out of envy and selfish ambition. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and I think Listen, we live in a culture where there are a lot of people with public platforms, a lot of people saying a lot of things that you can see in our own context. And my guess is you've probably seen a preacher or two or hundreds who preach out of selfish ambition and rivalry. Let I me mean, just think this through, like people, you can preach the gospel for selfish ambition to get rich, to make money, uh, to use the gospel as a means by which to enhance your own wealth and lifestyle. That could be one reason. Paul says they preach out of envy and rivalry. Some preachers preach entirely out of the context of what they're against. And so they have their enemies list, and every time they preach, they name someone from their enemies list, they rile everybody up, they get a following, that's how they preach. <clears throat> or there could just be the, the fact that that when you grow and you gather a following, right, you name a ministry after yourself. And the ministry becomes over time less about Jesus and more about the name the ministry was named. After there's a lot. Listen, if you want to, want to, what could this look like? Just Google Christian preachers, and you'll find plenty of examples, most likely. But whatever it is, they're preaching out of selfish ambition and rivalry. And think about Paul, on the other hand, who, as you read through his life, suffered greatly to get the gospel out, and he actually saw that as a key part of his ministry. Was the way you you pastor in the name of Jesus is you suffer in the name of Jesus. And so here he is suffering while people are are out outside the walls of the prison. Enhancing their life through their preaching of the gospel—that's circumstance two. Circumstance three uh, is even worse, as Paul says. Uh, so these people preaching out of uh, rivalry, uh, verse seventeen again. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Apparently, some people are actually publicly and personally attacking Paul as they preach out in the gospel uh, or out in the city of. Wrong. Apparently what they're saying is something along, maybe something along the lines of Paul is clearly a failure because he ended up in prison. Right, we all know good pastors, good ministries, they grow, lots of people come, that's how it works. And if you're a failure, you end up in prison. And look at Paul. That might have been what they what they were saying. Whatever it was, they are publicly attacking Paul while he is languishing in prison. Prison, So just, just, I mean, just embody that or think through that, everything Paul's experiencing. He's in prison, he's facing execution. The church community that he's given his life for is actually, so there's some folks who are preaching out of, out of uh, capacity to enhance their own lives, and some of those folks are actually personally attacking him while he's languishing away in prison. And yet, suffering does not kill Paul's joy. Why not? And I want to go into why, why not, why in particular suffering is, is a threat to your joy, but not for the reason you're thinking. But I want to, I just want to, I want to do an aside where I just say, like, if, if, you, are, if you just got really bad news, or so there was a, a couple here um, earlier today who had an intense death in their, their family, if that's where you are, the next five to six minutes of this sermon is not going to be particularly helpful to you, and you have total permission from me to just tune it out. If you got to get on Twitter, if you had a, if an email you needed to respond to, just do that, and then I'll let you know when you should listen again, because the next five to six minutes are not going to be helpful uh, to you in your current moments of life. So I told you, don't get mad at anything I say. The next, I told you not to listen to me. So, why does Paul not lose his, his joy? Um, well, I want to I wanna say, or I want to pull a quote from a book Tim Keller wrote uh, called Walking with God in Pain and Suffering, and it is, It's one of the most offensive quotes I've ever read um, from anyone. Here's what he says. Sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways that cultures train its members for grief, pain, and loss. And when this comparison is done, it's often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. Just you and I live in a culture that is one of the worst in history at preparing people to suffer. And that's a pretty pretty intense thing to say. Why? Why is our culture so ill-equipped to deal with suffering and pain? Well, to answer that question, you have to answer another question. One asked by Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he was reflecting on the Nazi concentration camps and, and was asking how did some people get through and some people suffer under the collapse of the awful injustice and evil they encountered. And here was Frankl's answer to how some people were able to get through incredible, incredible evil. He writes, As we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how could be the guiding motto. What Frankel's saying is if you have a, how, a why to your life, you can get through any how. In other words, if you have a goal in front of you, if you have a vision for your life, um, that enables you to endure suffering. Right? Your why for living is what enables you to endure suffering. So that raises the question, what, is, what does our culture encourage us as the why for our living? Why are we here? What is your goal in your life? What do you want to do with the years that you have on earth? What is your why for living? And, and more importantly, like, what does our culture encourage us to believe our why should be? And to see that, to get a sense of like what, what does our culture think our why should be, uh, a good place to start is commencement speeches. right? You're graduating from college, you're getting ready to, to embark into your vocational life, maybe starting a family. You're about to like really get into the meats of... Your existence. And so what do we tell college graduates they should go and do? What's their why for living? In David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, he summarized what you you hear in those commencement messages. He said, if you sample some of the commencement addresses being broadcast on C-SPAN these days, you see that many graduates are told, follow your passion, chart your own course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, and find yourself. That our why to existence in the broader Western secular culture is find what you want to do, what your passions are, and do those. What will make you most happy and do that thing, pursue that life. And that, according to Tim Keller, is why we are so unprepared to deal with suffering, pain, and evil. Keller writes, In the secular view, this material world is all that there is. And so the meaning of life, is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you most happy. However, in, view, uh, in that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It is a complete interruption of your life story. It cannot be a meaningful part of the story. What Keller's saying is, is a couple of things. One is if, if we live in a material world and there's no, there's no God, there's no uh, immaterial world, there's no spiritual life to attain Two, what that means is the only, the only why you can have is your own personal pleasure and happiness. To choose the life that will make you most happy. And obviously no one would ever choose to bring suffering into your life to make you happy. No one would choose to have a cancer diagnosis in your 50s or let alone your 30s. No one would choose to go through a divorce. No one would choose to, to have death enter into your family at a young age. No one would choose those things. And what Keller is saying is, if your why is just to be happy, then all, all that suffering can do is interrupt what your life is being lived for. It can have no meaning because all it is is an interruption to your own personal pursuit of happiness and pleasure. So just go with me on a hypothetical. Let's say we were to experience a pandemic in in the Western secular culture. What would most likely happen is most people would respond in very immature ways because they were not able to handle the introduction of suffering. They might deny that there's even a thing to to pay attention to, or they would just not have the capacity to deal with the introduction of the disruption, the suffering, because all it's doing is preventing us from living the life we want to live, and we just wait until it's over and we try to make it over as quick as we can. It's a hypothetical. We are not equipped well to deal with suffering, pain, and evil if our vision of life is to pursue our own happiness. Now, you're probably thinking, I've beaten that drum pretty hard over the last month. And the reason is, if you're a Christian, I'm going to ask you, you, we see that uh, in our broader culture in terms of people saying, this is my identity, I'm going to live that out, that's what's going to make me happy. And if you try to prevent that, you're repressing me, that's wrong. I think we've seen that outside the walls of the church. One thing COVID has showed me in the last year is how much that's present inside the walls of the church. How much of our vision of the good life is my preferences, my freedom, my desires, my, uh, my wants, and anything that gets in the way of that, I can't cope with and I can't respond to. And Keller wrote all of that many years before there was a pandemic, that you and I are not equipped well to deal with suffering and pain. It cannot have a meaningful part to our story. And yet, it's clear, Paul, that's, he has a different vision of life. My friend Nancy had a different vision of life. So what's a better goal? A better why to your life that would enable you to endure pain, suffering, and evil in this world? Well, let's look at what Paul says. When we get some of the most... Uh, Most intimate words Paul speaks in all of the New Testament. He's contemplating his own death. And basically, Paul is gaming out two scenarios. He's sitting from prison, and he's imagining two possibilities. One possibility is that he will die, and he will be executed, and he'll never get out of prison alive. The other possibility is that he gets out of prison alive and then he goes to the Philippians to visit them because, as we read on later in the book, it's very clear the Philippians are undergoing a lot of suffering, trials, opposition to the gospel in the city of Philippi as well. And Paul envisions a possibility where he's released and he can go to them and serve them and encourage them. Not to get out of prison to go and like do I'll get my you know all-inclusive vacation if I can get out of prison. No, so I can go and I can encourage you the way you've encouraged me by sending Epaphroditus all the way from Philippi to Rome, which we talked about last week. Here's how Paul games out those two situations. Verse 21: For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. For me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So what's Paul's why for living? What's his chief end of his existence? And he says, for him to live is Christ. He exists to experience and live in the presence of Christ. To live is Christ. I love the way the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism puts this. The first question of that catechism is, what is the chief end of human beings? It is for us to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And both those phrases could be a sermon on their own. But just think, as Christians thought, why do we exist? One of their answers was to enjoy God. And it's clear, in this prison cell, Paul has a resource of joy that the circumstances of his life cannot take from him because you can enjoy God from anywhere. From a prison cell in Rome and also in your home in Olathe, having been diagnosed with cancer in your early 50s. Every time I went to visit Nancy, I always felt the pressure to, to bring something for her. Bring a scripture, bring a book recommendation, just bring something that's like, okay, I did my pastoral thing here, I encouraged this, this woman. But what, what, was, what became very clear very early on is that she more often had something for me than I had for her, because she just turned her her little basement into into a temple, into a place to dwell and enjoy the presence of God. And so I just walked in. So every every time I visited her, it's like this is what the Lord's teaching me now. This is what we this is what we're talking about in prayer. This is what we're working through together. And so this this woman who was was a new, a new grandmother is dying at a, at a very young age, comparative to our our broader culture is a person of joy with something to give to me every time I I visit. And so what is your chief reason to live? What is your chief why? Is it to follow your passion, to follow your desire? I mean, listen, we all live in that. That's the water in which we we live. Why don't instead we make our goal in life to, to be to enjoy God? There's so much to enjoy about God. May that be our chief end. But here's where suffering becomes a problem. That I said suffering can kill your joy, but not for the reason you think. And the reason I say that, it's not because it's going to take away your circumstances or take away the happy life that you are trying to build for yourself. That's not why suffering can kill your joy, because your circumstances are not a very important important factor at the end of the day in terms of your your joy. But the reason why suffering can kill our joy is because it can kill our capacity to enjoy God. Because the problem with suffering, the problem that suffering introduces into us is, why, like, where was God? And that suffering can either drive us deeper into relationship with him, or it can drive us away. And so how do we keep enjoying God when we suffer? And I just want to just look at Paul and what Paul's doing, and let that speak to us, and how we can enjoy God even in the midst of our suffering. A few things Paul does. First, the first thing Paul does is he seeks meaning. So listen again to verses 12 through 14. Again, Paul, he's in prison. There are people out preaching the gospel, many to attack him personally. And this is how Paul reflects on that. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and so all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, have, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul sees two things happening as he's in prison. First is that Christians throughout the city of Rome have become more emboldened to preach the gospel throughout the city of Rome. There's more people preaching the gospel with boldness because Paul is in prison. And Paul's like, yeah, some of them are jerks. But I don't care, because they're preaching the gospel, and I'm grateful for that. The second thing Paul says, that the meaning he makes out of his own suffering... Is that the whole Praetorian Guard now knows that he's in chains because of Christ? They know the gospel. Because here's the thing to be in prison, there have to be people there to keep you in prison. And Paul's like, I have a captive audience to preach to, because they have to be like, this is their job to sit here and to keep me in prison, and I'm gonna preach the gospel to them. And I don't know if that means that there was conversion or what that means, but Paul's saying every time a Praetorian Guard showed up in his prison cell to keep him locked away, Paul's like, Hey, we've got time to kill. I'd like to tell you about Jesus. And that's what he did. So, Paul, in the midst of suffering, is able to make meaning of what he's seeing and experiencing. And you and I, when we suffer, listen, we will not always actually know what that meaning is. Many times we will not know what that meaning is. And yet, be on the lookout for the meaning that is coming from the suffering with which You endure, and one of the one one good practice even to do that 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 can work our way as we pray it out before the Lord is to journal. Just to journal out our experience and process, because a lot of times we find ourselves pulling things together as we write this down and beginning to see, oh, there's there's a story that's being put together here. So seek meaning out of your suffering. Secondly, you need to seek others. That uh, some, of the, some of the words in this passage are some of the most quoted in all of the New Testament. To die, uh, to, for, to mean to live as Christ is out of this game. That's a pretty, pretty, pretty well known passage. But my, the verse that really stood out to me this week is verse 19, or the end of verse 18 and 19. So Paul basically says, Yeah, there are a bunch of people who are attacking me publicly, but I'm going to rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers, in the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says that because you are praying for me, this all will turn out for my deliverance. And it's important, deliverance there is not in reference to Paul being released from prison. And Paul's not saying, you're going to pray for me and then I'm going to get released from prison. Because Paul, in a very open way, is not sure. Even though it sounds like Paul expects to be released, it's actually not the best reading of the passage. Paul, Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So when he says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, he then goes on to meditate on on the fact that he wants to be faithful in his body to Jesus as he potentially may have to suffer his own death. And Paul's convinced that because because there's the Holy Spirit and because the church is praying for him, he will make it out of this moment alive. So go back last week, what I said our our definition of joy for this series is going to be joy is when someone else is glad to be with me, when someone else's face lights up to See me. And so much of getting through suffering is just having other people who are with you in it. And it's, Paul knows, right, they sent Epaphroditus, this long journey from Philippi to Rome. It was very dangerous. Epaphroditus almost died on that journey. And Paul knows they are with him in his suffering. There are people praying for him. And Paul says, because you're with me, I will get through this. And this is why I'm rejoicing. I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... In the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So reflecting on this theme of of why we need others in the midst of our suffering, as as, as we we try to recover from suffering and have joy in the midst of suffering, Uh, Jim Wilder, in his book Rare Leadership, he writes this, Joy is not a recipe for avoiding pain. That's Western secular culture. I'm going to pursue happiness, I'm going to avoid pain. That's not joy. Joy is not a recipe for avoiding pain. Joy is what enables us to suffer well. Joy assures us that we are never alone in our pain and that those who share our suffering will show us how to remember who we are when things get bad. So remember what I said last week, what Paul said to this church when he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christ. That is, how, that is reminding us who we are in Christ. God has started a work in you. He will not give up on you, so therefore neither will I. Right? We're committed to one another because we believe who we are as Christians. We believe God starts a work in someone. He doesn't quit on them. And now Paul is saying, and I know you're not quitting on me. You're praying for me, for my deliverance. But here's the tension of, of this passage. That Paul's source of joy is the Christian community. They're praying for him. It's why Paul says, I'm going, to get, I'm going to make it to the end, the new heavens and new earth, because you're praying for me. Paul's source of joy is the Christian community. Also, Paul's source of suffering is the Christian community. People, Christians, who are preaching against him even while he languishes in prison. And here's the deal, like that, what ultimately what that means is, is you and I probably all have had experiences where, um, where the church has been a cause of pain in our, in our life. Where they've been a source of suffering as much as a source of, of joy. And that's hard. And it's even one reason why I'm naming, I'm naming that here is to say, one of the core reasons we exist as a church is not to call out the faults of other people, where they are in sin. That is a part of our calling when people are in, in, in real sin, to call them back to the way of Jesus. But what works more effectively is actually when you call people back to their identity in Christ, who they are, who they're becoming. And so often Christians are known for, for dunking on people, what they get wrong, for their bad theology, for look at your life, you're not who you should be, which is often why churches are not places of joy. Why they're places of great harm to people. Um, why they cause suffering in people's lives, and I just want to say, for us as a community, I want to embody Paul's words to the Philippians that we believe about every person we're in community with here, every person in this room. If you're in a small group, in the small group, in a Bible study, and, and this is the fundamental belief we have about one another is that God started something in in that person, and He's going to finish it. And my role, my first and foremost role, is to pray for their deliverance, to pray they make it, to pray that God finishes the work in them. And when a church is like that, right, when you see someone then fall and the response isn't, yeah, you did that again, that's who you are, that's, that's what you do, that's just, that's just your prayer, instead of responding in that way, it's like, no, 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 God's going to finish the work he started in you. This is how you're going to look one day, and I'm committed to that with you. That ultimately what enables joy through suffering is knowing there are people around you committed to you all the way to the end. And you see that Paul with the Philippians saying, When I get out of prison, if I get out of prison, I'm coming to encourage you, coming to serve you. And the Philippians, we're gonna we're gonna encourage you, we're gonna serve you in prison. When the church is like that, it's a place of joy. May we be like that. We need to seek others. And then third and, and finally, the thing Paul does even through his, his suffering, is to continue to seek God, even when he suffers. So keep seeking God. Uh, now, I've, I have never planted or grown anything in my entire life, so I'm about to use an agricultural metaphor. Some of you know far more about this, and you may think, it's, Tim, you didn't get this right. So well, you know, I got this from someone else, and it was so good, I'm going to try to use it, even though I've never grown anything in my entire life. So if you're like, this, is Tim, you don't know what you're talking about, you're, that is correct. However, um, what I've heard about growing grapes is is you can grow grapes by watering uh, the vines, watering the grapes, and giving them fake water, and you can grow grapes and uh, do what you do with with grapes. But the best grapes you don't water, that you force the root system to go down and find deeper sources of nutrients, of water, Um, because when you do that, the deeper the roots go, the better the grapes taste, the better... This is the evening crew, I can say this. The better wine that it gets made from those mature grapes. And it might, like if you're in a season of suffering where God feels dry in distance. And, and listen, the, the Bible speaks to that all over the place. But if you're in a, in, a, in a prolonged season of dryness from the presence of God, the reason might be he needs your roots to go down deeper because he intends to produce in something you can't yet produce. He's not going to give you fake water. He's not going to just make grapes. He he intends to do something with you, and the roots are not deep enough yet. And and listen, that's that's hard medicine um, when you're in the midst of suffering. And that's why I just want to give you a verse. that has been a, a really important verse to me. And the, listen, this is I, my favorite is Jeremiah 29. But this th- this line is throughout the Bible. Basically, if you seek God, He will see. He you will find Him. So Jeremiah 29:13, God is speaking to People who are in exile, they've undergone enormous suffering. They've been, their homes have been taken from them. And God says to them, when you come looking for me, you'll find me. And I, I believe that for you. If you don't believe that now, I just want you to know I believe that for you. If you keep looking, you'll find him. In fact, I think you'll actually find he's already found you. But keep looking let him grow those roots deeper and deeper and deeper. So what is your goal in life? Why are you here? What's, what do you want to spend your days doing? If you spend your days enjoying God, you can suffer through, through anything. The last time I saw uh, Nancy was at uh, a worship service for Shawnee a few weeks after we, we started. Her and her husband Reed moved to... Um, to Florida, and they came back to visit one time. And she wanted to come back to visit um, once we started Shawnee, because she was so excited for for us to to launch out of Olathe. And and after service, we connected, and we had this ongoing joke. We both both Nancy and I found it really weird when people lead worship without shoes or socks on. It's just in their bare feet. We're like, this is, just put some put something on, right? Anything. Um, and so we'd always laugh about. it. And she had found a church in Florida, because that's the Florida vibe, where uh, the preacher preached without. Shoes and socks on. And she's like, but it's, it's that good of a church. I'm willing to endure that <laughs> awful reality. And we just, la- we just laughed in that moment, knowing, knowing very, very likely we may not see each other again. And she showed throughout her cancer diagnosis to the end, you can suffer with, with joy because you can find enjoyment with God anywhere. In a prison cell in Philippi, in your basement in Olathe, even in a church where the preacher will not wear what normal human beings wear when they're in front of other people. You can suffer anywhere. And yeah, the, the reality is, there is this, this, like, there's death, right? That's the world in which you and I live. And so if you're watching the documentary with, uh, on Ernest Hemingway, who had a tragic death himself, he wrote this to his friends, All stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. And that's a lot of what we do in Western culture is we try to, we try to tuck death away. We try to hide it from one another. People die sometimes, right, away from public view. We want to, we want to keep it away from people. But the beauty of the Christian vision of joy is we don't, we don't hide from death. I mean, Paul, in this passage, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We are very wide open to the world in which we live. Yes, there is Death and yet for the Christian, death is gain. And the Paul, Paul who spoke this, claims he actually saw the resurrected Jesus. So this isn't just some guy saying like, ah, when I die it gets better. He, Paul was either a deeply disturbed individual, or he saw Jesus and he knows one day that the fellowship he began when he shone that bright light on me will be complete. So for me to die is gain. And throughout Philippians, and we'll talk more about this as we finish the series, Philipp- the hope of Philippians is not one day Jesus will come back, and when he comes back, then we can have joy. The message of the New Testament church was something has already happened, that the regime of death and suffering and brokenness was undone on the cross by Jesus, and it broke into our world a new reality, which is present, So you can experience the enjoyment of God right now, because his, he is present in this world in a way that wasn't true pre-resurrection. So you and I, it's not just we're saying, well, one day I'll die, it's gain. No, to live is Christ, because he's alive and reigning right now, and I can taste and experience his joy as is, and also to die is gain. Yes, there is more coming, but joy does not have to wait until you die and cross into the new heavens and new earth. You don't have to wait. Something has already happened and so wherever you are this morning, whether you're in a place of, or this evening, in a place of, of deep suffering, a place of, of no suffering, and this is more, I'm, I'm preparing you for what's inevitable in your life. I just want to encourage you to keep seeking God. Keep looking for him because you can suffer through anything and still say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for the life of Paul, who in the midst of suffering showed us that suffering does not have to be an overwhelming, isolating, heartbreaking experience. But we can we can even have joy in the midst of suffering. And so, Father, would you would you just speak what we needed to hear this evening? We're all some of us have suffered deeply. We're in a season, some of us we've never suffered, some of us there's just a lot going on. And God, would you just meet us in this space and speak what we need to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.